0: God has an awesome way of confirming his leading. This week, as John prepared that video, a faithful member sent in an unexpected gift of $47,000, an anonymous donor sent in a gift of $30,000, And another faithful member sold a property and brought in a check of $14,000. So it was just as if God was shouting from over the railing of heaven, you're on the right path, I've got this, I will provide. By the way, if you would like me to mention your gift next week, (laughs) you, you feel free to send in a check and I'll be sure to do that. Well, today I'm going to close our year-long study of the book of Acts because obviously in the month of December we'll be focusing on the faith-affirming miracle of Jesus' incarnation. And fittingly, as we close our study of the book of Acts, our final text comes from the very final lines of the book. It's Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul stayed two full years In his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. I've selected that final word for our title this weekend, unhindered. Would you say it with me? Unhindered. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, Enable me to do what I cannot do on my own. Enable me to accurately preach and teach your truth. And by your Spirit, enable us to see our next steps of growth in grace and faith and to take them confident in your power. We pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his great name, amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Have you noticed people have always been somewhat fascinated with the final words of famous personalities and celebrities? Some of those final words are profound, and other times they're just foolish. Some final words are inspirational. Others are wholly irrelevant. And sometimes final words are right on target, and other times they miss the point in time. An example of final words that were right on target come from the singer Bob Marley. Just before he breathed his last, he said to his son Ziggy, son, money can't buy life. Now those words were right on target because they were an almost direct echo of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said a man's life doesn't consist of the abundance of his possessions, and what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his own soul? A classic example of some final words that were tragically wrong come from another musician. They unfolded on Christmas Day, 1954. Most of you weren't here in 1954. During a backstage concert, the famous rhythm and blues singer Johnny Ace was playing Russian roulette, or some similar game with his revolver. And a friend shouted to him, be careful with that gun. And his now infamous reply was, it's okay, the gun's not loaded, see? And with that, he put it to his temple and pulled the trigger, and his confident assertion proved to be his final word. Well, as Luke concluded the narrative of Acts, he was confident he was using the right words to bring Acts to a close because his final words were shaped and informed and inspired by the Holy Spirit, just like all the other words in the book of Acts. And so Luke got it right. And the very last word of the book is one of those words that you can easily drive past without stopping to look into it and consider what God has to say to you through that word. It's the word unhindered. Now if you look up the word unhindered in the dictionary, it'll tell you that unhindered means not restrained in any way, not held back. And at first glance, it seems totally inappropriate for Paul's situation. You'll remember his arrival in Rome had been preceded by a life-threatening shipwreck. And then as soon as he came ashore, he was bitten by a venomous serpent. Now those things were behind him, but Paul had been through an emotional ordeal and he could have easily been hindered by fatigue and painful memories. Upon his arrival, he was immediately placed under house arrest, and he was confined to his own small rented apartment. In that apartment, he was chained 24-7 to a Roman centurion while he awaited trial before the unpredictable madman that history knows as Nero. So if I ask you to pick one word that would summarize Paul's situation, I seriously doubt any of you would suggest, oh, I've got just the right word, unhindered. He was confined, he was chained, and he was destined to be condemned. And his countrymen weren't about to lift his spirits. Upon his arrival, Paul asked the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome to visit him in his apartment. And when they came, they were surprisingly clueless as to what had happened in Jerusalem. It appears that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem hadn't told their brethren in Rome about Paul's dangerous message and how they had tried to murder him on several occasions, each time without succeeding, because the leaders in Rome weren't aware of any of that. Maybe the religious leaders in Jerusalem didn't bother to communicate it because they figured first time Paul opens his mouth, they're going to know this dude is... Dangerous, and they're going to hate him as much as we do. But Paul invited the religious leaders to his apartment, and they all gathered in to that small space. And despite what had happened to him in Jerusalem, Paul refused to play it safe. He boldly declared the message of the gospel and talked to them about Messiah Jesus. You see, he was chained to a soldier. But he wasn't chained to fear. And as he boldly declared the gospel, initially they listened rather respectfully. But then they began to see this is a message we don't like. A few of them liked it, but the great majority refused to believe it. Because the message of Christ threatened their status quo. It threatened their power. It threatened their prestige. And they probably would have attempted to murder him just like their brothers in Rome, but they were expats living in Rome and they couldn't touch a Roman citizen. So they just voiced their disagreement and departed. But not before a parting shot from the Apostle Paul. As they prepared to leave, he quoted one of their own, the prophet Isaiah. And as he did, He made it clear that somebody in that room was hindered, but it wasn't him. He reminded them that when we refuse God on his terms, our hearts become terminally hindered. We lose the capacity to see reality, to know what's really going on. Paul's countrymen had been given a great opportunity to know God's truth. They passed on it, and an opportunity shunned is an opportunity lost. And so, quoting the apostle or the prophet Isaiah, Paul said, From this point on, you will see, but you will not understand, and you will hear, but you will not comprehend. It rather echoes another phrase in Scripture always learning but never, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, in short, said, because of your unbelief, you are now spiritually hindered. Now, Paul's sobering diagnosis could easily be applied to our current American culture. In what I like to call classic role reversal, unbelieving humanity feels that they are better qualified than God to define truth, to define human identity, and to define moral behavior. And this confidence isn't based on some new discoveries. It's based on the same old spiritual rebellion. But refusing God doesn't change reality. It just changes those who refuse God. And it changes them For the worse, it diminishes them because when people dictate terms to God, they lose all their spiritual discernment. They become incapable of seeing truth, even when it becomes flesh and dwells among them, even when it performs miracles, even when it accurately prophesies the future, even when it proves its claims by virtue of a resurrection. Almost every day, I hear some strident, confident atheist saying, it is intellectual insanity to believe in a God that no one has ever seen. And when I hear that, I just want to shout, what do you mean nobody has ever seen God? That denies reality. That denies written history. In Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was seen by thousands of people just as skeptical as people today. He made it clear, those who see me are seeing the Father. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham existed, I existed. I am. And then he backed up what would have been outlandish claims otherwise with his promised resurrection. So when some intellectual says nobody has ever seen God, they're lying. They are flat out denying recorded history. That is intellectual insanity when you deny the facts of history. So the issue isn't that nobody has ever seen God. If you had gotten here earlier, you could have seen him. (laughs) The issue is many don't desire to see God as he truly is. Why? Because when we see God as he truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see ourselves as wonderfully created in His image, but horribly broken. Creatures addicted to a dehumanizing power called sin. We see ourselves as being in need of repentance, in need of confession, in need of surrender, in need of rescue, in need of restoration. And that doesn't leave any room for self-sufficient arrogance and pride. People don't want to see God as he is because they refuse to see themselves as they are. Paul was unhindered even though outside his apartment door, hell was spilling out. Nero was torturing and murdering Christians as a matter of political convenience because bad government always needs scapegoats. And the followers of Jesus, who would not take up arms, who had been told they were to love their enemies, were ideal candidates, safe candidates to be scapegoats for Nero. And the sad thing is, the persecution of the believers aroused little protest from the Roman society at large. Because, much like our own nation, Rome was in a place of spiritual degeneration. Here's what a scholar from the first century wrote describing Roman culture, and it sounds like it could have appeared in the Post-Gazette this morning. He said, and I quote, Rome is a nonstop orgy of ungodly entertainment in which the self-anointed intellectual elites endorse every form of sexual immorality, while the people and I changed the quote a bit, drank the Kool Aid of materialism. End quote. See, the Romans had a phrase for this dynamic bread and circus. And here's what they meant as long as the people's bellies are full, and as long as they have something to entertain them and distract them, they'll accept bad government and the persecution of others, just as long as they've got theirs. And it was true in the first century, and it's equally true in 21st century America. Now, in the face of all those hindrances, God's strategy for building his church in Rome and in the entire Gentile world was one diminutive, rather homely Jew with an annoying speaking voice who was a prisoner of empire under house arrest, never knowing when death would come to knock at his door that was it. But Zechariah 4.10 reminds us that when God is in the mix, we should never belittle a small beginning. It says, do not despise the day of small things. You see, Rome appeared to have everything under its control. But Rome subsequently fell, not conquered by armies from without, but conquered by its own spiritual decline within. And while Rome was falling, the church grew rapidly and is still growing rapidly today. Not in our nation, sadly, but in many, many other parts of God's world. So Luke's final word as he closed Acts, the word unhindered, doesn't jump off the page. It doesn't appear to be a powerful word, unhindered. It sounds rather quiet, but I'd like to suggest that wherever the people of God and the church of God are facing stiff opposition, that word unhindered should be read as a raised fist rebuttal. World, you may mock us, you may hate us, you may despise us, you may one day persecute us, but we are Unhindered. Unhindered. Okay. That word doesn't shrink in the face of evil. It shouts defiantly in the face of evil. It shouts that human hindrances can't hinder God's people in mission. Despite Jewish unbelief and rejection. Despite Roman corruption and arrogance. Despite persecution, and the ever-present threat of death, Paul was, in Luke's estimation, unhindered. And Luke was there with the team. He saw it up front. For two years, Luke watched as a steady stream of searching souls from all walks of life made their way to that little apartment to hear about Jesus, because the imaginary gods of Rome weren't giving them a peaceful night. Many came to faith in Christ. That little apartment was nothing compared to the splendor of Nero's capitol building, his palace, or the majestic halls of the Roman Senate. But that little apartment room served as the headquarters for God's operation world. And from that tiny space, God raised up countless Devoted followers of Jesus who subsequently took the gospel to every corner of the Roman Empire. And we read that some of them came from Nero's own household. How's that for a ghetto slap to Nero, huh? Some of these believers, Nero, are coming from your own household. And some of them came from the ranks of the centurions who guarded Paul. You see, when a Roman centurion was chained to Paul, who was the captive? not Paul. No, Paul looked and said, a captive audience. I can talk to this guy about Jesus. He can't go anywhere. He's got to stay with me throughout the whole shift. Dude, how's your soul doing? And how are those pagan gods working for you? Can I talk to you about something better? Because I used to be where you are right now, but I found something better. Shift after shift after shift after shift after shift, God brought in next candidate for salvation. Well, let's chain him up so he can't go anywhere. And within those walls, in that tiny apartment, Paul wrote letters to the Colossians, to Philemon, to the Ephesians, and to the Philippians. Portions of God's Word that for centuries would inform, inspire, and instruct Jesus' followers until Jesus returned. See, the world couldn't discern any of that because they would see and not comprehend, hear and not understand. But God's people know what was really going on. Rome placed Paul under arrest, but Paul's arrest couldn't arrest God's mission because the world's defiance can't defy the power of God. Even on those occasions where God allows the world to take the lives of his children, as Nero eventually took Paul's life, secular history reports Nero had him beheaded. But Nero didn't silence Paul. Let's compare them. Nero hasn't said one word since he died. That's pretty typical. And really nothing he said before he died was worth remembering. I don't hear people quoting Nero. Why would you quote Nero? It's like quoting Hitler. But the Apostle Paul hasn't stopped speaking yet. Bible said, even though dead, the faithful speak. Well, Paul speaks every day through Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians and Philippians and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and on and on and on. Paul right now is speaking in virtually every dialect of humanity and on every continent and in every nation, and he'll keep on speaking until Jesus returns. So you see why the Spirit said, last word, Paul's under arrest, could die any day, confined, chained. Ah, uh, let's, let's say unhindered, unrestrained, nothing holding him back. It effectively summarized what God had been saying all through this book of Acts. God doesn't need favorable circumstances to do his work. He just needs faithful servants. Circumstances in America right now aren't very favorable. Doesn't matter. They've never been favorable anywhere. But we can be faithful. God can do things in seemingly insignificant places through seemingly insignificant people despite what appear to be significant barriers. As a boy growing up in church, I sang a little chorus that said, little is much if God is in it. Scripture says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Or as the little girl in Sunday school said, if God is for us, you're up against it. I like her version. That was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. Now, before I close, those are the three words you've been waiting for. Before I close, let me sound a brief caution because sometimes we take a biblical principle too far and we get into a hot mess. The circumstances around the word unhindered, just one man, small apartment, small, 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 aren't intended to suggest that small is somehow more spiritual. Some people make that mistake. You see, God doesn't prefer small results. He simply isn't hindered by small beginnings. Big difference. God wants people everywhere to come to faith. He's not willing that any should perish, so he doesn't want small results. But he isn't hindered by small beginnings. So where the body of Christ seems to be perpetually hindered, we need to ask ourselves, have we bound ourselves with chains of our own making? Because the only chains that can truly hinder us as the people of God are the chains we forge ourselves. The world can't put any chains on us that would hinder us, but we can put on our own chains. The chains of a lifestyle inconsistent with the gospel, where you try to stand with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It's a great way to get spiritual hemorrhoids, by the way. Or the chains of reliance on our own ability rather than relying on the Holy Spirit. I know, I'm I'm, I'm crude, but I'm not going to change. At this point in life, I'm no longer crude, I'm eccentric. (laughs) Then there are the chains of fearing people and the rejection and mockery of people. There are the chains of putting our ultimate hopes in God and something else. There are the chains of resisting the changes that God orders for His church. And there are the chains of placing our ethnic and political identity above our kingdom identity. Those chains will bind us. And perhaps the most dangerous is the chain of a divided mind and a divided passage. If you try to hold on to Jesus and the world, you will suffer from internal spiritual dissonance. And you will be hindered, but it will be an unnecessary hindrance of your own making. Where you're following God, you will always be unhindered. Well, if somebody had conducted an opinion poll while Acts 28 was unfolding, and asked the question, who is the most influential person in Rome? Nero would have won hands down. But the verdict of history and of the Word of God is that the most influential person in Rome was Paul. Nero survives as an icon of paranoia and pathological murder and cruelty. Paul lives on as an icon of the gospel and the Christian faith. And Paul did more to shape history than a thousand Nero's. Because Paul's still shaping history today. He's shaping history in this room right now. Nero, not so much. And it was all because as God's servant, though chained and confined, he was still unhindered. And so are we. So are we. The world cannot hinder us from fulfilling Jesus' mandate for his church. They may mock us. They may want to erode our rights. We may yet live to see act of persecution. If so, we'll be joining believers all around the world. But they can't hinder us. We will always be unhindered if we remember who our God is. So as we close in prayer, you erect a prayer chapel in your heart and mind. And I want you to ask God two questions. One, Lord, have I hindered myself through some chain of my own making? If so, show it to me. And the second question for the Lord, Lord, have I allowed the world to hinder my expectations? And depending upon the answer God gives you, pray accordingly for a few moments. While believers are doing that, if you've been with us today and you've never embraced Christ as your Lord, and by faith ask God to regenerate your life, this would be a great opportunity to do it because an opportunity shunned is an opportunity lost. So if you've never said, Jesus, save me, we would invite you to do it right now. More importantly, God invites you to do that right now. In the quietness of your heart, just say, Lord, save me. I realize I'm broken, and I can't forgive or fix myself. I confess Jesus is my Lord, and believe in my heart he was raised from the dead. And I take him now as my Savior. Father, we are so thankful that when we're walking through this broken world with Jesus, we can never truly be hindered. Our fate is never in the hands of others. We are never slaves to circumstances beyond our control. We are free in Christ. We can do all things in Christ. We can see what's really going on. And we can minister even when we're personally in pain. Because we are unhindered. And it's so good to be living unhindered. Thank you for making that possible. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 By the way, I love you guys. You have a great Thanksgiving. God bless you.